Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash death, dying, and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. First of all, sorry this episode is so late. A lot of things have been going on in my personal life that have distracted me, and in some cases, made even getting simple tasks like finishing an episode of this podcast hard or impossible. Some of those things I'll talk about next month, as they're heavily influencing next month's episode. For now, though, here's the conclusion of that story I've been telling for the last few months. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, the third part of a story about a man on a journey for an answer. In The Ghosts of the World Part 3, a man's journey comes to a close. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. And those I didn't wrap around myself, I draped over June to keep her warm as well. Or maybe it wasn't the temperature. Maybe it was just chills from the fever that the infection in my leg was causing. It had been a painful few days since the attack in the open field. I needed to drain the pus in my leg twice a day to relieve swelling, and I quickly ran out of clean bandages. I had resorted to rolling up my pant leg and letting the crisp late autumn air dry the wound out, perhaps freeze it some. It wasn't sanitary, but it was the best I could do. June was reliable as ever, marching forward through the dim forest, ignoring the cold. Anything faster than a trot was too much movement for my mangled leg, 
and so I mostly kept June at a steady walk in those first few days in the forest. I anticipated my fever breaking at some point, but rather than go away completely, it settled into a low grade as my leg began to heal. The pain was still there at the beginning of the fourth day post-attack, but the swelling went down substantially, and the pus oozed out of the mostly closed wound rather than requiring manual drainage. With the fevers waning, I required less blankets, and by the end of day five post-attack, I actually began to enjoy the crisp forest air. The ghosts, since I had dove headlong into the clear pine, hadn't made themselves known, and I felt confident that, for the time being at least, I had lost them. I sat amongst the falling snow that night. I leaned against a tree that I had built a small fire underneath, the same tree I had tied June to, and relished the mild warmth that the fire brought to my bones while doing what I had done since I arrived in the clear pine. Listening. I sat absolutely still. The pops and hisses of the fire in front of me and the slight breeze whispering through the trees was all the sound about me, but I set my ears further away and concentrated. I waited for any sound approaching June and I. A rustling perhaps of a rabbit or a fox or some other mutated wildlife looking for a meal. A howling of a wolf or an elk or some deranged moose scratching closer to my campfire's light. Or a shriek. That horrible telltale sound that ghosts are near and they are closing in and it may be too late even to flee. The flames of my small fire danced in front of me, licking my face with welcome heat. After several hours standing silent sentry, I sunk further against the tree behind me and rubbed my face with my warm hands. It had taken me a very long time to get here to this forest. I was a day's ride from the foot of Harscale Mountain according to my map. I sat a moment and contemplated the difficulty I had undergone to get here. The long ride and the grievous injury and the horrible sights. I opened my eyes and glanced up at June, who had her eyes closed and was resting for the upcoming day, and I followed her lead. The next day... The clear pine never got much brighter than it was at dawn. This was not only because of the dense forest, but also because of the thickness of the clouds overhead. The sun's position in the sky overhead was a mystery to me as I rode June through the cold woodland. She was cooperative as ever as we weaved through the trees, pushed through thickets, and now, thanks to a light dusting of snow, plodded over frozen ground. I did my best to continue listening to the world around us for signs of the Earth's agents tracking us down, and they never came. 
our scale mountain, came into view suddenly. It was, by my estimation, late afternoon, or perhaps early evening. I think I had drifted off on June's back, and suddenly I was at the foot of that massive tower of stone. My leg, though still in poor shape, was wrapped tightly enough that I could hobble around with only slight pain. And so I hopped off June, tied her up, and took in my surroundings. The trees had become more sparse here. Though the forest was still thick, there was less room to hide in a place like this. Though the tall cliff face at my back would provide some shelter. The snow from the previous night was nearly melted, soaking the top layer of dirt. My boots sank half an inch into the ground with each step. I hurried to start a fire before day turned to night, and within an hour the weather turned again. The temperature plummeted, and snow drifted down from the heavens. I turned that question over in my head once more, that question I had traveled so far to get answered. What is the point of all this misery? The question now seemed so juvenile. I laughed at myself for wanting the gods to answer a question I already knew the answer to. What is the point of all this misery? There is no point, and we largely do it to each other, and we do it to ourselves, and we do it to the world around us. I knew that. I didn't need the gods to answer it for me. Instead, I decided on another question entirely. Is there any way to go back? I didn't quite know what I meant by that question. Or perhaps it was that I meant a lot by that question. Is there any way to go back to before I left Linham? Is there any way to go back to before the world hated us so? Is there any way to go back to before whatever calamity led to this? Is there any way to go back to before my wife passed away? I think, in asking, is there any way to go back, I meant all of them at once. And I hoped that the world could provide me with an answer. I scribbled the question down on a piece of paper, put it in my pocket, and held it against my breast like some sort of talisman, and prepared to stay at the foot of Harscale Mountain for the next three nights. I was nearly out of food, but what I had left could be stretched over three days. I'd get one meal a day, but I wouldn't need much strength to stay in one place. I had several oat cakes for June as well, but I would probably have to forage or let her graze to get her enough food. Water wouldn't be a problem. Since the weather turned, the sky had been dumping snow on June and I for hours, and melting that down and boiling it into drinkable water would be no problem. The only issue I foresaw for the coming days was the weather. It was cold, and getting ever colder, and I needed to find a place that not only sheltered June and I from the snow and wind, 
but provided some level of warmth as well. We wouldn't be able to survive out in the open. I ended up constructing a rudimentary lean-to, taking advantage of the nearby tree's thick branches. In the end, I had a small shelter that held in the heat from the fire I built at its entrance, blocked most of the chill wind whistling through the forest, and prevented the snow from falling on my bedroll. All in all, it was fairly cozy in there. And when the sun set behind the clouds, I had a place to relax for a moment, before the breeze carried the shrieks of distant ghosts to my ears. I tensed up and slid halfway out of my new shelter, now knowing I was in for an unrestful night. It was well past midnight in my estimation, when I was awoken from a light napping by another screech. I jolted up, and in doing so jerked my leg in such a way that I aggravated that slowly healing wound. Pain shot up my spine, paralyzing that half of my body for a brief moment. I sprawled out against the cold ground and groaned. June bristled nearby. When I came to my senses, I looked around and found that snow was falling heavier now. Not enough to be alarmed, but it was accumulating on the ground and in the trees and on the top of my makeshift shelter. I clambered up to my feet and took a deep breath, the pain in my leg now settling into my ears as a low ringing. I peered off into the dark woods in the direction I thought I heard the ghost, but could see nothing besides rings of progressively dark tree trunks, an endless black void. The shriek again cut through the darkness, surrounding my camp. June tugged against her tie, but then calmed. I limped over to the pile of brush I was using as fuel and tossed some more onto my small fire. The fire was sure to alert the ghosts to my location, but I wouldn't survive without its warmth. I checked my shotgun to make sure it was loaded and then slinked back into my lean-to. I'd need a little more sleep if I was going to be gathering firewood the next day. I'd run out of fuel, and the fire had gone out by the morning. The snow had continued falling through the night. It was six inches deep on the ground, and it hadn't let up. By the coming night, if it continued snowing, it could be a foot deep or more. To make things harder, it was light and powdery, and the wind was blowing large drifts of the stuff against the cliff face that I had decided to camp against. Those could grow to three, four, five feet deep. I knew I'd have to gather a great deal more wood for the upcoming night. It would be colder, harsher, and letting the fire die would be out of the question. Letting the fire die during the night would probably mean I would die as well. I spent the day wandering the nearby forest and digging through snowdrifts, looking for downed branches, fallen trees, dead bushes, anything that could be used as fuel for the fire, and ended up with what I thought was enough to last me through the frigid night, if just barely. 
and I built my fire right around dusk to cook the last of my food. I ate a good warm meal, fed June an oatcake, and settled in for the night. More shrieks came that night, but far off. Perhaps further off than the night before, but I figured that it was probably wishful thinking. I kept an eye out, waking often to scan the dark forest for signs of the ghost's glow and to feed the fire, the only thing keeping me warm. Just after waking, I wandered over to the rocky face of Harscale Mountain. I looked up at its height and wondered about its magic. What allowed this place its power to give answers? Was it just another one of the Earth's tricks? Retribution for mistreating it so? Or was it different from the world and its hateful ghosts? Perhaps some ancient being now acting as our ally in our struggle against a planet bent on annihilating us. I wouldn't ever know. I took a breath, said the words, is there any way to go back? And then waited for something to happen. Some signal that the mountain had heard my question and was considering it. Something. Nothing ever did. After a few minutes waiting, I walked back to the fire and sat down next to June and spent the morning reading. The snow led up through most of the day, still falling but easing up to a gentle dusting by late afternoon. I was getting antsy and decided to take the few daylight hours that remained, put my healing ankle through its paces, and take a gentle stroll through the now peaceful clear pine forest. There was no telling what the evening might bring. Disappointment. Despair. So I wanted to enjoy the winter wood, distract myself, and leave a little bit of room in my mind for joy before my journey came to an end in several hours' time. The forest was largely quiet. The cold breeze caressed my face as I limped along. The snow danced around me clinging to my eyelids, hitting my cheeks and melting into water droplets. I listened for signs of wildlife or worse, ghosts, and heard nothing of the sort. I picked up my pace to a quick walk. It ended up as more of a skip or a hop, as my leg still wasn't stable enough to take the full weight of my body at high speed. But it felt nice to raise my heart rate a bit. When a sweat started... I felt it best to stop before I got my clothes wet and gave the cold an easier way to seep into my body. I wandered until it was nearly dark. The gray haze of the never-ending snowstorm gave way to an inky blackness as I approached my camp. And then, my heart stopped. In the evening's dinge, the dying orange light of my neglected fire was visible from several hundred feet off, but a familiar sickly blue was also mingling with the warm orange. I stopped in my tracks and considered turning away, but here, up in the north, during winter without June, there was just nowhere else to go. And besides, I had now committed my life to hearing the answer to my unanswerable question. I crept forward through the forest, each footfall crunching fresh snow beneath it. The blue glow danced from tree to tree ahead of me, and when I had snuck close enough, 
I ducked down behind a thicket. There were three of them. I had never in my life been this close to a ghost, and now, being in such close proximity to three of them, I knew the chances of escape were nearly zero. They gave off an aura of oppression that numbed my brain, and I felt my thinking slow, like I was infected by some sedative. I peeked out from behind the tree I was hidden against. The snow plummeted to earth like so many shining meteors. The forms in front of me shifted like mist. The blue glow came from somehow deep inside of their shifting forms. They at once had arms and legs, and walked on all fours and stalked on two legs and floated formless around the camp. They hadn't yet spotted me, but knew I was near. June was pounding her hooves against the ground, snorting in terror, and pulling against her tie with all of her might. I saw my shotgun against the tree, near June in the lean-to, on the other side of camp, past the three ghosts. Darting from tree to tree around the perimeter of my camp, I somehow remained hidden from the searching ghosts. June was relieved to see me, and she calmed slightly. I reached around the tree and grasped my shotgun, then lunged forward into the camp, shotgun leveled at the nearest ghost. I didn't hesitate, firing the first shell at the nearest threat, and then the second shell at one on the other side of camp. But it was futile. The shot passed right through the ghosts, and my actions only served to alert them of my presence. The one nearest me, who had just brushed off the first of my shotgun blasts, shifted and twitched and then largely rearranged its hazy form into a humanoid shape, and then, on its horrible shifting head, the faces of people I knew flashed. First Mary, the last person to see me before I left Linham, sneered at me. Then my grandmother and grandfather took turns gazing upon me in disappointment. My wife bared her teeth at me and spit at my feet. I tried to turn and run, but I found that I was rooted to the spot. Then the thing expanded. Its form grew. It sprouted glowing, ethereal limbs up and down its body, and it creeped towards me. The other two moved to flank it. Its blue wisps reached out towards me. Frozen in both fear and awe, I heard a voice deep in the back of my mind screaming at me to move, but it was too late. The ghost's head had settled on the image of my smiling wife, and I sat, ready to succumb to my fate. The spectral tendril flickered, only inches from me. Then, it brushed my side. The pain was first. It felt like a white-hot brand had been pressed into my side. I screamed as the pain seared into my brain. I looked down and saw the ghost had cut through all the layers of my clothing, my jacket, leathers, sweater, and shirt, and what's more, the ghost had easily shredded the skin underneath. In an area the size of a melon, the skin on my right abdomen had been shredded off of my body and the muscle underneath wasn't left intact either. Blood poured out in an uncontrollable torrent. I stumbled backward losing my balance but managing somehow to stay upright for the time being. I stumbled over to June. The ghosts shrieked in unison.
out into the dark forest. She took off, at first hugging the rocky mountain face of the cliffside, and then swerving into the darkness. The ghosts at once turned their attention toward the fleeing horse, and I dropped to the ground. I crawled across the frozen ground, away from those glowing terrors. June, galloping off into the night, drew their attention briefly and allowed me to drag myself into a nearby snowbank and sink down into the powdery white. I grasped at my side. Red clung to my hand and quickly froze into a thin layer of red ice, which flaked off when I clenched my fist and then replaced itself as I again clawed at the wound on my side. The ghosts shrieked when they realized I had slithered away. The heavy snowfall, I hoped, had covered my tracks well enough that the ghosts wouldn't be able to find me immediately, and I fell as still as I could, pressing on my side, still seeping red into the white snow towering above me. Soon I would bleed to death, or freeze, or the ghosts would find me. That much was certain. I laid, gasping for breath, looking up past the deep snow to the dark canopy of the clear pine. Large snowflakes swirled in stiff breeze, countless dancing stars against the deep night. I could feel my mind slipping, even then. My vision blurred, but I focused and forced my consciousness back around. I could see the glow of a nearby ghost as they stalked the campsite, looking for me. I thought of June. If I was lucky, she had made it well clear of the campsite, out of sight from the ghosts, and was on her way back to Linham, or perhaps Carryville. Or maybe she would live out her days on the plains, free, like I never could be. The cold numbed my thoughts, and the blood loss was getting to be too much. I knew what my fate was, but I wanted so badly to hang on and hear the answer to my question. The glow of the ghosts got more intense about me. The white snow, both in the air above and in the snowdrift I currently occupied, turned a sickly blue from the ghost's malignant light. I watched the tree branches sway above me, heard the wind kick up, and listened for the answer to my question while I drifted off. Is there any way to go back? My vision blurred once more. Darkness gathered on the edges of my mind. The light in front of me faded along the edges and began to creep into the center of my vision. I fought to hold on, fought to hear the world's answer. And finally, the wind carried a faint voice, shrill and full of malice, to my ears. It offered me the simplest of answers. No. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, The Ghosts of the World, was written by me too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to the upcoming winter. 
Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other shows. They're great. New episodes the second Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. <laughs>